0: Fate would like like to thank thank Jack Rishishan and company for sponsoring this episode of Positive Space. Rishishan manufactures all sorts of painting and drawing supplies. That's oils, oils, acrylics, watercolors, pastels, charcoal, charcoal. you name it, they probably make it. Heck, they even have studio furniture. Make sure to check out Jack Rishishan at rishishanart.com. That's R-I-C-H-E-S-O-N-A-R-T dot com. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory, and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes.
1: Hey there, this is... Valerie Powell, and welcome to Positive Space. Today, joining us via Skype, we have Emily Bivens. Welcome, Emily.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Yeah,
1: yeah, of course. So why don't we start by you telling us just a little bit about um, maybe an introduction to to your artwork, teaching background, and and your current position at the University of Tennessee.
2: Yeah, so for my artwork, I I make objects and videos and performance and interactive sound and a sundry of other things into installations that present what I call the oppositional and, so things that should be or, I kind of think of them as and, so things like alive and dead or animal and human and Mm. indoor and outdoor So these things that are usually posed as oppositional in my work, I try to blend them in a way where they become both. And that's what I'm most interested in in these objects. i kind of in these videos and performances and sound projects. And so I kind of resist one specific discipline. I think that's what really brought me to foundations in the beginning is the idea that you can study or teach or think about any way of formulating those ideas. So I'm the director of foundations at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. I'm also newly the director of graduate studies. I'm an associate professor in 4D and time-based art, which includes video, sound, performance, and we throw installation in there. And I really feel pretty strongly about that being a time-based experience. And that's really reflective in my artwork. Wow, so you do a lot of stuff. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> I do. That is correct. <laughs> you are amazing and you will do I stuff. am amazing. Want to start that way, let you know I'm amazing. <laughs> well, and I you know, I'm curious because with with all the
1: kinds of things that you're interested in in terms of like hybrid when you were growing up were you always creative in that kind of way were you in, interested in different materials or were you kind of latched on you really like to draw we really like to to build things
2: you know I I think back on it and I more than anything I think I was a great liar so um <laughs> I've always had a flair for the narrative I think less of a maker you know my my there was certainly making that existed but I think really it's telling stories, reading stories, thinking about stories, I, I'm from southern Louisiana, and there's a great narrative legacy that exists. And that's what really, I think, initially attracted me is that idea of creating a world, that idea of kind of creating, creating narrative, creating sort of things that seem false but are more true than truth. So that's that's what I think as a child I was more I thought that I was going to be a scientist and and so really spent a lot of time outdoors, a lot of time running wild, which I think is really important for artists. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, climbing trees. You know, we, we we grew up in fairly, you know, just just a, a kind of outdoors wild existence. I think that's what influenced me the most. That and and, and the cultural aspect of storytelling and and history. So those things, I think, show up really readily in my work, especially the idea of, I mean, in southern Louisiana, let me tell you, you can be indoors and it's all outdoors. You know, I mean, there's a pretty thin barrier between between these things. And so I, I feel that's pretty relevant to my work today.
1: Well, sure, and and the South is so rich in narrative and story, and it's it's pretty complex, you know. I mean, what seems like is on the surface can sometimes be something very different.
2: Yeah, that's yes, that's true. (laughs) I'm
1: I'm just going to ask you a series of true or false questions for the (laughs) remainder of our conversation. I think everyone would enjoy listening to that. You're like, yes, no, no,
2: maybe. (laughs) How brilliant you are and observant.
1: Well, and, you know, I think when it comes to narrative and and all of that wonderful storytelling, do you find that that's something that is easy to bring into foundations in terms of this idea of story and and place or space? That's my dog, Olive, and she's really interested
2: um, in your answer here. I hear that. Um, I'm for it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think that idea of foundations, I mean, one of the things that we think about in our very first assignment is sort of starting with what you know. We don't want to end there by any means, but starting with something that you are the author of, you know, something you know, something from your history, from your background. And I think there's a great deal of power in that. I think there's a lot of reflection that kind of takes place throughout where it's important not just to stay with an introspective gaze, but Mm. outward, look onward, think about, think about authorship. I mean, thinking about authorship is, I think, a really powerful political stance as well. Who, you know, who is the author of your story? Who is the author of the stories you hear? Who is the author? And how authorship is wrought with a sense of, you know, control. So, so that, that's definitely something that comes into, especially at that beginning level to be empowered to start with what you know, and then immediately start questioning it, you know,
1: right, and sort of unpacking it and going, Oh no,
2: is that real? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, we do that our whole, I feel like I do that, you know, perpetually is, is the strength of narrative is that. It's really flexible. And I think that's the opposite of the common thought of narrative as being solid. But I find truth, memory, narrative really, really flexible. And, and that's, I think, what makes it so fascinating. Well, yeah, and, and it
1: seems like thinking about projects or thinking about curriculum and how that could be really flexible is also pretty crucial in terms of foundations experience. I mean, do you do, you do a project that invites them specifically to think about who they are or, or what they've heard or what they remember?
2: Yeah, so I do something um, it is possibly a little bit different than, so what I do is I teach the graduate students to teach the foundation students. And so when I'm doing that, these are the kind, I talk a lot about leaving room. So sort of using that very age old metaphor of an egg, that if if you're holding an egg too tight, it breaks. If you're holding it loose, it falls on the ground and it breaks. And so you want to have this sort of structure that allows students to bring themselves into it without giving them no support in going forward to do it. And so that part about giving room for the narrative or giving room for themselves or giving room for flexibility or flux within it, I think is really important. When an assignment, when we're going over their assignments and they get too directive, that's when I'll step in and say, this is really your project. How can you make room for the students to have, have it be their project as well?
1: Mm. Uh, yeah. 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 And and so your role then is to sort of mentor and guide the grad students as they're teaching within the foundations program.
2: Right. And I, I mean, I think the way that I approach that anyway is that our asset is that we have a really diverse population of graduate students and they're coming from a lot of different programs, a lot of different regions. And so when they're coming in, they're actually offering what they've got to offer is their voice right? Their sort of mm-hmm. ideas, their sort of direction. And so I want when they build assignments or when they start to think about their curriculum, I want their voice. I want it to be their ideas, their risk that they're taking. And what I see my job is doing is is quality control and sort of a base level consistency so that our students are getting a basic level of consistency, but there's a lot of variety within how each of those graduate students interprets this proficiency. So. Sure, sure. So, so then are
1: are all the courses, are they all doing like the same projects or are they kind of coming up with them and then they're maybe just supposed to teach to a certain learning outcome
2: or, or whatever? So they're, they're teaching to standard learning outcome and certain materials. And so the learning outcome and the materials are consistent throughout the different classes, but how they articulate that or make that, you know, a reality can be really varied just depending on the different skill sets, different attitudes, different cultural understandings of each of the students. But now they go in there, I want them to feel really confident about what they're talking about. They're first-time teachers, so that can be daunting. I certainly have that as a strong memory going into oh, a class really? <laughs> and trying, trying some pretty bizarre assignments and seeing what happened. And so I want that to be everybody's memory. <laughs> <laughs>
1: bring on the bazaar, right?
2: <laughs> I, but but more than that, I think I, I want them to feel really confident in what they're teaching. So if they're feeling, you know, like they have authorship of it, then they are going to teach it in a way that gives them just ownership and confidence and, and in some sense authority in that, in that assignment.
1: Well, sure. And I mean, it's, it's so crucial that they feel like they have permission to be themselves, you know, like right. come back to to something that you know, you know, like like you were saying before, it's like they have to feel kind of comfortable in their own skin to kind of draw that out or encourage that within the students.
2: I'll say there are plenty of times, too, when I'm saying, you know, this is a skill set we really need to teach, so this, you have to do this. I mean, there's plenty of times, and I think that's what I, I say this all the time, what I like most about teaching is that it pushes me to constantly move outside of my own interests, my own skill sets, my own habits. You know, it's constantly asking me to grow and that growth is super exciting for me. So it's not just that I want them to come and teach what they know. I think they are constantly expanding what that is. I've learned so much about my own art practice or about different artists or about you know, different approaches just but in the process of teaching for the last 11, 12 years. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, no, and I, I think that that's that's such a fun thing about foundations is that you know it's not like a one trick pony. I mean, there's so many. Not yeah. that that's really a good analogy in the situation, but but because that it's, it, it's... <laughs> <laughs> right,
2: right. <As> you're writers. <laughs>
1: yes, indeed, indeed, and and you know it, it just seems like there's there's such opportunity to, to yeah to expand materials to really think about what is contemporary art really doing right now and what do they need to know about it and of course that's not going to stay the same you know from from semester to semester
2: I mean I think that that's too what what we talk a lot about in the seminar where we do this we spend a semester together talking about all of these Kind of issues and ideas and learning new materials and thinking about assignments and thinking about theory. We have a theory inclusive program, which I think is really has been an important aspect for me. So, the thing that we talk about a lot is that if you just simply teach what you were taught, that's how canons are perpetuated and that. If you're looking at your list of artists and it's not an inclusive list, if it's not a list that has a wide array of representation, you're doing a huge disservice to your students because just by standing up there, you are saying, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm up here telling you what's important. And if that list of artists that you're going over isn't, is, is just simply what you learned, which is probably just simply what your, your professor learned, then you're really falling into that aspect of a canon, which is usually going to be not very inclusive.
1: Absolutely. But, but it's, it's so, I mean, I think it's just widens up everything to, to really think about how you were taught I mean yeah. I really I really didn't think about that until I was in grad school you know I just sort of took right. everything as well this is absolute truth and this of right. course is the right way to do it and you know I, I I must have a sketchbook and I should never write in it you know oh no you know I must only draw like pairs or whatever you know
2: so... should draw <laughs> pairs pairs of <laughs> pairs of shoes
1: Pairs all, everywhere, yeah. pairs of fruit, all all of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a like revolutionary thing to, to to really reflect on that, and I think reflect on it often. You know, I mean, not not just for first year students or right. first year teachers, but even faculty. I mean, I found that I I start doing things, and I'm like, wow, am I really? Is this really true? Am I really, right. uh, you right. know, presenting this in a way that's the most authentic?
2: And that's, I mean, that's another sort of one of those, when we talk about our foundations program, we talk about our kind of the principles that that are kind of guiding principles. And one of the things we talk about is when you're presenting a technique, or you're presenting a theory, or you're presenting an artist, that there's a reason that you're doing it, and it's not necessarily this artist is the most important, this part artist but rather this artist is relevant because we're looking at it under this lens or this technique We're we're doing this technique not because it's the only way to you know accomplish this goal but because of these set of circumstances that will allow that to be the most helpful or productive technique and the reason that we're doing that is that we're hoping that our students understand that rather than a right or wrong method, um, Mm. that there's a sort of reason that we're doing this, but you can come up with your own technique. You can come up with your own sort of set of thoughts or guiding, you know, guiding principles for any given scenario. And with, a reason behind it, it can be just as legitimate as the reason that we're kind of following this set of rules or whatnot. Sure. So it kind of just becomes
1: a place to begin the conversation. It's not saying this is the most important or this is the most crucial or setting up like a hierarchy. But I found that so often students... Or maybe it's just human beings. We have this tendency to think of something as like, well, this must be right and this must be wrong. You know, like right. I want to do it the right way. As, as if that exactly exists in all right. situations.
2: Right. And we'll say a lot of times this is the way we're doing it because this is how we can safely do it or economically do it or within the laws of gravity, which I feel are always in flux, you know. <laughs> right. I just want to offer up that we're not always going to live on this planet, so we're going to do these things because gravity exists now, now. but that's the question. Yeah.
1: yeah. You know, it's, it's important to throw those kind of things out there. I, I totally, 100% <laughs> agree. Um, well, and, you know, thinking about kind of training and mentoring graduate students, do you mm-hmm. find that... That there's a lot of anxiety, you know, as they're about to go into the classroom. I mean, you sort of mentioned that you had some weirdness, you know or or thought about because it's it's kind of a scary thing. You have these people yeah. that are, you know, looking at you and thinking that you know everything or at least a couple yeah. things. You coming into the classroom, was that something that you always thought you would do? You know, like when when you went to yeah. graduate school?
2: I'm not sure I saw I, I'm not sure I saw it that clearly. I do like. I do like teaching quite a bit, and I did very much want to teach in in graduate school. I was given a sculpture class, and with with not a whole lot of guiding principles, and so I had them read the entire about looking, and um, mm-hmm. we did a lot of experiential learning. I'll say, so <laughs> there's poor people. Um, but I, I would, so there was a lot of on-the-job learning, certainly for me. Um, I also let it kind of take up my entire life. And then that's what I'm really cautious with my students about, with the graduate students here, is is that I want them to understand that they are artists and that they're here. We brought them here to be artists. And so that their teaching should in a way help inform help them better articulate their ideas because they're learning to articulate ideas about art in general and mm. so that's become really symbiotic for me there's a huge you know there's people who walk into the classroom feeling like they're walking onto a yacht and then there's some that are walk in just feeling absolute terror you know and so so there's just a huge variety and so there's a lot of sitting down with with instructors one-on-one and talking about it and and really thinking about how to teach to their best so so we talk a lot I I remember for me in graduate school we had somebody come in and talk about um and analyze our speech patterns and wow yeah, and, and that sounds like a great thing. One of the things that they told me was that I had a lazy tongue because I was Southern and that made me sound less intelligent. <laughs> you know, that hurt. Um sure.
1: I would just become completely paranoid to speak. <laughs> I,
2: mean. I didn't. I was actually she misread it. I was doing a Barbara Walter Walters impersonation because that's why I thought you conducted <laughs> interviews. I I've learned since then. I'm not doing Boba Walters right now, in (laughs) case you're wondering. But I guess I want the students to use their, to to teach how they're comfortable. So if they're by nature very quiet, I'm not going to ask them to be very outgoing. But I do try to work with them to best utilize whatever it is that they bring to it. And so I think there are a lot of ways that we can look at each personality and say, what's, how are you going to do this? Where you're feeling really confident and comfortable, and the stu- and the students are going to be responsive to you. You know, not every student, but to you, or every instructor, but to you. So th- those are sort of the one-on-one things that I think were really important. Uh, there are some things I think that I've over time adjusted. I mean, that's the best thing about working. With graduate students is that you're just learning so much, you know, you're learning, you're thinking about things, they challenge certain ideas and you think, yeah, let's challenge that idea right here and now let's do this.
1: No, that's that's so great. So that it can be really flexible and really like responsive, you know. So if they say, "Well, why you know why are we doing this?" It's like, "Well, that's a great question."
2: Yeah, let's let's
1: talk about that. Let's really dig into that. Absolutely.
2: And and, and... there's there's this other you know when we when we redid when I redid this this foundations program, it was quite it was quite a task. It was quite difficult. And I said, I never want to do this again. And so, which is not an endorsement. I'm sorry to say that on the podcast, but it was so, it was so much work that I tried to build a foundations program that was changing every year instead of sort of every couple of years, rethinking it and, you know, completely overhauling it. I wanted to make it so that it kind of evolved over time. And I really, I have to say it's evolved over time in great part to, Graduate students who had questions about it, you know, or who had ideas, um, you know, who added things. I can think of so many things that an instructor like Gwen Montgomery brought to the table and and has made it so much better, you know. Or Jessica Anderson, who are you know, and there are these great teachers that came into our program and just really. Changed them to the positive, so I really appreciate that part of it. It's it's a bit lazy on my part because it's it <laughs> let them do the you know hey you have right. good ideas like. <laughs> so well, well, yeah, but but I think it's, it's so important, especially
1: in foundations, to kind of surround yourself with really smart people, you know, who are really yeah. curious, and to have that kind of influx of new creative energy coming in every couple of years. I mean, that really adds a lot. To a program, and so thinking about how you kind of revamped um, stuff at UT, was that, you mentioned it was hard, I mean, was it hard because of faculty stuff, or was it hard because there were just so many directions to go and latching on to something was, was kind of challenging? Um,
2: it was a pretty significant change we didn't prior to that point we didn't have 4D in the curriculum so we didn't have time based work in the foundations curriculum it was not interdisciplinary uh in the sense that there were sort of, there was a beginning drawing class and there was a beginning sculpture class and then there was a a sort of, uh, varying class. And so, so it was, it was a big, I guess it was a big structural change. And anytime there's a big structural change, there's a lot to figure out. Um, there's a lot of pieces to, to negotiate. And so I think that's what made it really difficult. I think change is hard for people. And, and I think having a theory inclusive program was a shock to the system. I also think that the graduate students that we have now, you come in and you say, we want to do, you know, we want we wanna, want you to teach theory to freshman students, or we want you to teach time-based arts to, they're like, great, let's go, let's do it. But I think 11 years ago, that was daunting and, and less, less exciting. We didn't have the structure in place and the support in place to make that smooth we now have that structure in place where we spend a, you know we spend a semester talking about it in a class, and then we spend another semester meeting one on one, really thinking about it. And um, I've had I've had a bunch of students graduate, and you know, after they graduate, their thoughts on what we were doing and how we did it changed really dramatically. And so in some ways, you have to be really responsive. But in some ways, you have to listen to them, not just while they're in the program and feeling really nervous about what they're doing, and listen to them when they're out of the program and on to teach something else. And so I think those two voices are really important. Somebody like Peter Catroni, who who was just recently here, he was in our program, and then he taught afterwards, you know, and I just really value this people like him who who spend a little time afterwards kind of thinking about the program from more distance and giving input and that input has been really important as well so it's not just our graduate students while they're in but when they're actually out teaching elsewhere and and i'll still text past graduate students like gwen montgomery and jessica anderson and peter petronio you know for their input Uh, i think it's been really valuable
1: Oh, that's great. That's great because it really is something that takes a little bit of time to think about. I mean, grad school is so intense in, in all ways. Yeah. Um and so to kind of take a minute and go, Okay, this is really how this this felt or this is really this really worked well and here's exactly why.
2: Right, right. Yeah, this is where this becomes relevant. Also it's just you're more comfortable after you've gotten out of graduate school. Sure. Thanks. <laughs> like, it's like getting the sand out of your bathing suit. It feels much better.
1: Oh, that's such a great analogy. I love that.
2: <laughs> As we're getting our last beach vacations in. <laughs>
1: right, exactly, exactly. You know, and I'm, I'm curious because you, you mentioned like 4D and, and, and time-based things um, and putting that into the curriculum 11 years ago. So does that mean that there's a class that's just devoted to 4D within foundations, within that sort of first-year yeah. experience?
2: So my ideal is that there would just all of the you know 2D, 3D, and 4D would be mixed together. Within our curriculum, we make decisions that just help students get through in a timely ma- manner, help me uh, train the graduate students to teach those classes, equipment concerns, all of that. What we have is not my ideal, which is um, we have combination 2D, 3D classes. We have two of those. And then we have a standalone 4D class, a really think that 4D shouldn't be a standalone class. I think it should be incorporated into all of these other material concerns. And, and the reason I say that is that I think that the formal understanding that you gain in 2D and 3D investigation are so critical and crucial to making really good 4D work, time-based work, and vice versa. Thinking about context As mandatory, thinking about negotiating space, thinking about audience, thinking about how something starts and stops. Those are all really crucial to 4D. You can't, you can't, they're non negotiable for 4D. But I also think they're non negotiable for 2D and 3D. And so getting those in the same conversation, I think, is really helpful for students. I like doing that in the beginning of their education versus sort of saying, and by the way, all of these things are related. Uh, <laughs> surprise. right? Surprise. <laughs> I took French as a, as a kindergartner and I, gosh, I retain that stuff. You know, I think when you start out sort of thinking about these things as related, these things as interwoven, these things as critical and crucial. I also think there's a there's a tendency in academia, which is really why I ended up in foundation because I, I re, I did not want to choose a medium or even a, I wanted to do all things, you know, I, I still want to do that in my studio. And so, so this aspect of the, that one, there's not a hierarchical value from one to another is I think really important. I think that, When we apply hierarchy to media, it's very easy to then apply hierarchy to other things. And questioning hierarchy or questioning validity, I think, is important on a social level. And if we can do that, you know, in this context, I think, you know, those lessons can drip out to kind of how we see hierarchy and inclusion and uh, validity in other areas.
1: Sure. Well, and it, it makes so much sense when, when I think about your work being about blending <laughs> things and, and not separating things and wanting to right. have that, that sort of fluidity. It totally makes sense that you would find yourself in foundations where you get to sort of be on the playground and get to be on the slide and the
2: swing. Right, right. I do not like to choose. That's exactly. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. It's Absolutely. why, it's why I, I'm an advocate of the El Camino. The <laughs> El Camino.
1: That is amazing. I did not know you were gonna say that. I, I love that.
2: I love that. I just I like cars and trucks, you know. You know,
1: why choose really?
2: <laughs> <It's>, yeah.
1: <laughs> I think you're the first one to mention the El Camino on this
2: podcast. I hope you don't laugh. you know, my dream is a banana yellow one, even though I think yellow is questionable in most cases. I'm I'm for it. No El Camino. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yellow is is wonderful. It's it's very,
2: very very crucial.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, so how, I'm curious, how did you get involved in FATE?
2: Yeah. Um, Basically, I just, I had this new program and I wanted it to evolve and I wanted a place to hear and talk about how it might evolve. So basically having this new thing where I said, okay, Now let's watch it change over time. (laughs) I felt like I needed some input or some ideas or, I guess, some excitement over that. I'm the only person in foundations in my um, department, and so the only faculty uh, in this position. So I don't have a place for that conversation to really happen with people who are also sort of in the trenches of, foundation so that's that's what attracted me to it I felt really fulfilled in that mostly too I like to go to the conference and room with people and and stay up late and laugh (laughs) you can edit that out (laughs)
1: no it's very fun and we in full disclosure we've been roommates several fake
2: conferences sign me up you know anywhere I can roommate with you I'm (laughs) I'm Preferably at a water park, but also. Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> if there's a pool involved, or at least there's a good robe in the room. You know? <laughs> That's really how we should be making decisions about the next fate conference. Like, tell me I, about the robes.
2: Tell me about the robes, <laughs> and do you have a sauna? <laughs>
1: there you go.
2: There you
1: go. <laughs> yeah. Very fun. Well, let's see, you know, I'm, I'm curious, I want to talk more about, you know, you're talking about um, narrative and sort right. of thinking about identity and things like that not only with your work, but also, you know, kind of wanting to expand that into the classroom and the way things are going nowadays. So many topics and so many sort of tricky things that that some might view as sort of complicated, you know, to talk about, whether it's politics or gender or power or those kinds of things, current event kind of stuff. How, How do you sort of encourage or direct the grad students to sort of handle that within that classroom space because a lot of personal stuff sometimes comes up and you're making things.
2: Right. So that's, I mean, that's a good part about the, a good portion of the preparation is how to make the classroom a safe and respected place you know, showing respect for each of the students and giving them space to exist. And sometimes that's something that can be really tricky in that people's definition of what that means is quite different. And so one of the things that we've done is that we've talked about what to do when things, not necessarily how to prevent or how to encourage, but how to respond with openness and respect. And so that that's kind of, kind of a important aspect. And I do ask the students to let me know as soon as something has happened, something has come up, something has somebody feels uncomfortable to let me know. We've had situations actually where a student a student felt uncomfortable for whatever reason and and it escalated where it went it, it went above all of us, straight to the top of our university. And it was really interesting because then we were really held under a microscope. So everything that we were doing was then, and it was a wonderful instructor um, that it, we were lucky, a really wonderful graduate instructor that it happened to. And so our whole process was put under a microscope and analyzed. And it was actually great. I want to just quote Pat Summit here, which is, uh, who is uh, <laughs> winningest basketball coach. She taught the, she coached the lady balls and passed away recently. And she is quoted saying that it's not, it's not what you deal with, but how you deal with it. So, um, she says it in a slightly different way, but she got Alzheimer's and she said, Alzheimer's isn't going to define me, but how I fight, how I deal with this, this adversity is going to define me. And so, what we really talk about is not preventing things from happening but dealing with the things that happen in a really calm and respectful way so that you're not shutting someone down either on, on on either side of an issue or multiple sides of an issue so so those are the kinds of things we really work on it was it was great to be put under the microscope and for it to be shown that we have a you know all of the things in our syllabi that talk about Boys that talk about, you know, all of our assignments that are written, and and she had just done such a good job preparing that when the provost asked to see all of our assignments, we gladly said, "Please look at them." Those those moments that seem like they're conflict, if dealt with in a really positive way, show the students, show the instructors, show the administration that thinking, talking, bringing up difficult situations is really our opportunity to expand how we understand them. And so looking at those opportunities as moments of expansion, I think, has is, is been really important for us.
1: Oh, that's huge. And, and I can imagine that, that they're could have taken that away and gone oh no you know this is terrible this is awful this is going to be frightening and that of course would have colored the entire experience but I think you know being able to look at it and go okay like what what can we learn from this and what what can we do to improve and sort of reassuring yourself and the grad student this is just part of assessment this is part of making sure we're doing what we say we're going to do
2: Right, right. And and that is, I mean, it is what we say we're, that we're going to do. We're not, we talk about critical thought. And, mm-hmm. and if we're going to talk about, about uh, developing critical thinking, then it's got to be put to the test in a way for us to really practice that. And I think we're constantly practicing at it. That practicing doesn't stop when you're out of school. I think we're negotiating and practicing critical thought and critical dialogue, you know so often and in this political climate i can't help but say preparing them to talk about things that are difficult in a respectful way is something they can take whether they go on to become an artist or not right right That's-
1: absolutely
2: a variety of viewpoints, engaging in dialogue with that. You know, th- those are those are big things. Those aren't just about being an artist. I like to walk around our university and tell everybody that art is the center of all discipline. It's a really popular outlook. But basically, <laughs> thinking about the things that we talk about in art and the sort of Pulling interest and ideas in from all disciplines and the openness of our boundaries and borders—that—that that makes us actually the center of the the universe and the university. I I don't think it's gone over so well, but I do believe it.
1: <laughs> well, I would sign up for for that party. I mean, that sounds like an amazing way to sort of reorganize all things. You know, <laughs> no, it's 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 phenomenal. But well, and and you, you know. When when you first got to the University of Tennessee, obviously you didn't have tenure, I'm assuming. No. And so, so how, you know, how is that, you know, now you do have tenure. And so was it trickier to kind of navigate change and encourage change within that kind of dynamic?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think it was, and not only didn't I, I didn't have tenure. I also didn't have this sort of desire to be, multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary. It didn't give me a really solid home team, right? And so I didn't come into and and as I said, I'm the only one in foundations. And so I think it did take a lot of negotiation. It took for me anyway, a lot of times of of sort of taking a breath and saying, okay, again, following the lead of the great Pat Summit to say, how do I, how do I navigate these situations with grace? How do I navigate these situations with integrity? I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of those base level things that I think you'd find in any, any discipline, but, but change and and acknowledging that change is hard. It's hard Uh for people who have spent their hard earned time and positions to form something to come in and change it you have to do that with respect that's been you know i think that's a really important aspect on which whether you're advocating change or you're advocating and also trying to change while holding on to the really solid things that were built before i came the change in the program was significant but it was based on something that I that really drew me to University of Tennessee, which was a really strong commitment. It's, it's a research university, so there's a strong commitment to research, but there's a really strong commitment to the students, and that aspect is what I liked about the position, and that was really in existence in the program, you know, in the foundations program before I got there. Some really hard work had been done prior to my arrival. And so trying to build on that rather than wipe something away and starting over is really important.
1: Sure. And, you know, I think most of us can probably relate to not really having a team. I mean, some, not not all of us, but I mean, some of us in foundations are just sort of we're the cheerleader, the coach, the, I don't know any other sports analogies. That's like all I've got, but... <laughs> Are there other positions in sporting things? I don't know. Um, but, you know, we, we really have to play all of those roles. But but everyone within a department is so invested in what we're doing because we really, rightly so, I mean, you know, we're preparing students to go into their jewelry class or their sculpture class yeah. or what have you. And so, of course, they have a voice in that. But it, it can often be kind of tricky to navigate. And I think that's probably one of the things we really don't learn in grad school It's just sort of like the politics of that. At, kind right. of how to how to navigate, how to be respectful, how to listen, how to not be like a bulldozer, but also, you know, how to have a plan and kind of choose your time wisely, you know, all of those right. kinds of things, but it, it can be really complicated and sometimes sort of mm-hmm. hopeless feeling, you know, cause you come in and you, you want things to happen. And that, but, but maybe that's, that's not the best way to go about
2: it. Okay. I, I, I went up and I saw Ray Goodwin's program at the university of Kentucky. And I've got, oh, yeah. I just, I learned so much. Um, she had this moment where she is handing out awards to the freshman students, which was just tremendous. And she said, OK, before you break up, I just want to know what we're doing good and what we're doing and what we can improve upon right here now. Just give it to me. And I just my jaw dropped. I mean, it was just so forthcoming and so open. And I thought and they had great ideas. The students just had great ideas. And I thought, boy, that is a really awesome moment. And I went back to UT and I we were doing a cleanup and I just I thought, you know what? I I'm gonna go around and talk to everybody every person in here and ask them what we can what they liked, what we could do better. I learned so much just by and it seems so silly, of course I should have been doing that before, but just the openness of saying open ended question. What'd you like? What you didn't like, you know, what what's going on with you? You Yeah, I mean it was just so open ended the way that she did it, and I and I tried to emulate that, and really found it so helpful to just hear those. So sometimes I think that there's a lot of things that I think faculty kind of talk and grumble about, and and formulate an idea without going to the source. And so the mm. source element, I felt, you know, just um, I said to Ray, your students are so lucky to have such a program. Yeah, that's,
1: that's incredible. And I think so, so good to, to just sort of be able to, you know, check out other programs and and see what's working and then think about how you can adapt that to what you're doing.
2: I mean, I think that's, that's also, I mean, I felt the same way, um, going over to Chris Kinky and Joe Montgomery's program in, uh, Illinois and thinking about, you know, how they structure it, that's probably, as as much as I say, you know, I'm the only person in my foundations program, those folks that are out there and have been so open, that's, that's really, if you talk about the role of fate or the role of these national conferences, the ability to see what they're doing out there has been so informative and have directly impacted what I then came home and did with my own program. And so I, seeing those institutions have been, has been really great. Oh, that's
1: huge. That's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. But I just want to thank you, Emily, for, yeah. for chatting with us. And I, I, yeah, I, I really, really appreciate it and I've really enjoyed it.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for having me. That great
1: um but yeah thanks again this has just been super fun
2: great thank you
0: thank you for listening to this episode of positive space if you're interested in being part of fate's ongoing conversation about art foundations visit the fate website at foundationsart.org don't forget the dash between foundations and art this episode's interview was conducted by valerie powell and was engineered and edited by raymond gaddy Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevear. If you like what you hear on Positive Space, be sure to give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcast. Better yet, send us some audio. You can call Positive Space at 904-990-FATE. That's 904-990-3283. You may find your voice on the next episode of Positive Space.